to the best of my knowledge, there is no drug which is used in medicine today which could be considered to be 100% free from risk. Well, that uncomfortable statement came from Dr. Austin Dara, chairman of the Institute of Clinical Pharmacology situated in St. James's Hospital in Dublin. The institute, which dates back to 1964 and has a unit in the United States, is called simply the ICP. It's a privately owned company with three shareholders and a board of directors. ICP employs almost 100 people and it has an annual pay bill of £1.3 million. Its employees are mostly technical people like doctors, scientists, nurses and laboratory technicians. Put simply, the role of the ICP is to test new drugs after they have been tried on animals but before they are tried clinically on people who are ill. To do this, they use healthy humans who have volunteered to have the drugs used on them. More on that anon, and back to Dr. Dara for a summary of the story of a pill from conception to full use in medicine. Yes, I think what they say today is we have a disease, and we will try to understand what produces that disease, and then we will find a drug which can be predicted to treat that disease by remedying the cause. Now, what's the route from that point to where a drug is actually marketed? Well, the most important first step is to see if the drug will produce the effect which it is hoped it will have in the human being in a suitable animal model. And let's take the antihypertensive, the anti-blood pressure drugs. These are tested in a variety of different animal experiments to see whether or not these drugs actually do lower the blood pressure. That's the simplest example I can give you. Having demonstrated that the molecule which has been invented can in fact lower blood pressure, the next important question is, all right, but would this drug be tolerated by a human being? It's effective in a dog or a cat or a rabbit in lowering blood pressure, but is it safe to give it to a human being? That is the cardinal question which then must be answered. But is it valid to assume that the effect of a drug is the same on humans as it is on animals? It is likely that we'll do similar things in human beings, but that must be confirmed by carefully controlled studies in human beings. Now, your unit here is involved in that area, that, that part of that route is in testing it on human beings, amongst other things. Now, what happens, though, after that, because we'll come back to that in a moment, what happens when you have decided that, yes, it is uh, all right for treatment with human beings, yes, it does achieve desirable effects. What about the undesirable effects, though? Can you find those also? Well, the undesirable effects are usually the consequence of interaction with systems within the body other than the system which is affected by the disease and or by an exaggerated response in the system which is diseased. And so we can get some indicators of the possible areas in which these side effects, which may also be called adverse effects or unwanted effects, will appear. So that in the early phases of studying a new drug, it is possible to begin to get indications of where caution should be observed. You know, the development of a new drug, in many ways, is like the development of a new airplane. There are various stages in the development of the airplane which are very necessary. First of all, when the concept of the shape and size of the 
aeroplane has been established. It's customary to make up a small model, a mock-up, which can be tested in a suitable environment, a wind tunnel, to see how the aerodynamics will uh, perform. This is the type of work which is done for a drug in animal testing. This is a model of the possible situation in which the drug will be used in man. Having gone through the wind tunnel testing, then the aircraft is built in the right dimensions and prepared for test flying. And this is really the area which we're involved in. We're involved in phase one human testing of drugs, which means that we take the drug into man for the first time. We take it off the ground in man for the first time under very strictly controlled conditions. And hopefully we will fly that drug, we will use that drug in very calm and uh, controlled circumstances. We don't want to run into any turbulence at this particular stage because we want to know how the machine will react to the controls which we have to utilise. And similarly with the drug, we want to be able to see that we can uh, utilise the drug to produce an effect and we can utilise, if necessary, other drugs to restore the systems to normal. In other words, we will climb for height and we'll come down safely to the ground again. And until we have learned to take the uh, drug up into the uh, high dosage range, which would be like taking up to high altitudes if it was an aeroplane, we're not in a position to hand that drug over to clinicians to use in sick people. We must be able to give an instruction manual to the clinician who is going to take that drug into sick people so that he can have as far as possible at this early stage in the history of the drug clear indicators of the dosage range, the duration of time the drug will stay in the body, how frequently the dose must be repeated, how the drug will interact with other drugs which may have to be prescribed and the necessity for special attention to be given to problems such as defective functioning of the liver or defective functioning of the kidneys in a patient. We can learn from studies in the normal subject how dependent the person will be on a normal liver function or normal kidney function for the drug to be removed and detoxified from the body in an acceptable period of time. So, the route for a new drug starts with understanding the disease, then producing the drug, then trying it out on animals, then trials with healthy human beings, and then using it with sick people who have the disease the drug is designed to cure. But there can be snags. If a drug has got a suitable therapeutic index for the conditions for which it will be prescribed, then it is reasonable to go ahead and permit this drug to be made available for prescription on the general market. Now, in some particular circumstances, a drug may be very, very valuable in man and have a very poor therapeutic index. I'm thinking about drugs which are used in the treatment of certain cancers. These drugs are, in their own right, highly toxic chemicals. And one has to take a balance between the necessity to treat the patient to cure the cancer or reduce the spread of the cancer and the side effects which will occur. And, you know, 
some of the drugs which are used in cancer will damage the immune system, others will cause some personal problems like total loss of body hair temporarily. And if that was an after-effect of a drug being used to treat a sinus infection or to treat a chest infection, it would be totally unacceptable. But it is acceptable when the clinician is confronted with saving the patient's life who is suffering from cancer. So the therapeutic index, while a good guide to the acceptability of a new drug, has to be taken in conjunction with the kind of life expectancy or the risk factor involved in not treating the patient at all. On average, it takes seven years for a new drug to move from conception to birth as an acceptable treatment, and it can cost up to £100 million to cover that gestation period. But I put it to Dr Dara that the financial rewards for the manufacturer are huge. Yes, they are, because of the size of the world. That if you have a drug which is demonstrably a superior drug or a novel drug for treating a widespread problem, then the very uh, size of the marketplace uh, will determine the revenue which will result from that. Not necessarily the level of profitability, but the actual volume of revenue will be determined by mainly the volume of usage. The ICP is one of several companies worldwide which are used by drug manufacturing companies to give an independent and totally objective opinion on their new drugs. These companies are paid by the drug manufacturers to give these verdicts, but their very existence depends entirely on their independence and on their track record in drugs testing. One mistake could wipe them out. Dr. Dara again compares the operation of ICP to that of testing a new aircraft. In the same way as the black box in the aeroplane records every detail, not only of the conversations between the captain of the aeroplane and the ground control stations, but also records all the data coming in from the various instruments which have been placed in the aircraft to provide information about the performance of particular components. And this may not be just the aircraft instruments showing altitude and speed and drift and fuel consumption, but in the test phase, there are special additional instruments utilised to show stresses on particular parts of the aircraft which could lead to undue wear and tear if the aircraft was malfunctioning. And we have got to carry out in our test facilities here an extensive battery of tests, many of which will return totally normal values. We'll be looking at temperature, respiration rate, the reflexes, the um, blood pressure changes, the picture from the cardiograph, etc. And we have got to record all these things hour by hour, day by day, in relation to the duration of the test of the drug. And so we provide the facilities in which this kind of extensively detailed investigation can be performed, if I may say, to the highest possible international standards so that the resulting technological information can then be embodied in a report which will be submitted to the regulatory authorities who then will decide whether or not it is permissible for the drug to be used in therapeutics. 
so they test therapeutics, not then even for the marketplace, because once we have cleared it for use in the sick patients and given this information to the regulatory authorities, they will then decide whether or not to grant a clinical trial certificate, which means the drug can then go into the more uh, widespread studies in patients, after which all the data coming from those patient studies will be assembled and placed before the regulatory authorities in different countries who will then decide whether or not to grant a marketing license. So there is no fast route today. A vital part of the ICP operation is an adequate source of healthy people on whom the drugs can be tested. Now obviously you cannot force people to participate, so I wondered why people would want to volunteer. I went to a bedroom of one such volunteer in the ICP and the Director of Nursing Services, Helena Nugent, explained what was going on. This is a Dynamap monitor and it's checking the blood pressure, heart rate and mean arterial pressure and it's giving a visual showing of uh, exactly what Jerry's blood pressure pulse and mean arterial pressure are. Why do you want to know that? This is part of the um, testing on this particular trial. At various intervals, we have to take his blood pressure and pulse and uh, mean arterial pressure and see what's happening since he got dosed this morning, see if there's any change from his baseline. And how long will this testing go on this time? This will go on until eight hours post-drug, which will be at um, four o'clock this evening. Jerry Clark is a volunteer and, lying comfortably in his bed, he put down his book and told me what he was doing there. I'd be in this unit for nine days. I'm testing out an antibiotic. Why did you volunteer? Well, there was a couple of reasons. Uh, I'm between jobs at the moment, so it helps out with, with the money. And uh, as well as that, I mean, my mates were always telling me about it before, so I was just interested to see what it'd be like, you know. So. Would you call yourself a guinea pig? No. I ju I'm just a human volunteer in a study. They need humans because they can't get the information on animals, so I don't like being called a guinea pig. And are you suffering any pain from being in here? No. Did you fill in a form before you started? Yeah, I have a consent form there. It's, it explains the drug trial and the, the way that it has to be uh, carried out, like blood samples and that. And, and did you find that form acceptable to you? Oh, yeah, very acceptable, yeah. Are you afraid in any way about risk? Well, there's a risk in everything, but, I mean, I know what I'm doing. It's been thoroughly explained to me. So I'm not, I'm not afraid at all. No. I've had done them before, you know. It's not my first. And how much are you being paid for this? Uh, this is £195. For nine days? Yeah. And um, you, you're not in any way afraid that uh, what's being done to you by way of injections will upset you in any way? No, no. How often do you have injections? It's once a day for, uh, for the nine days. And what tests days. will they do as a result of each uh, injection? What tests do they do every day with you? Uh, you mean uh, alongside the injections? Uh, well, they take me blood pressure and uh, pulse and temperatures and things like that, you know. Are you unhappy here? No, no. Are you bored? Uh, you get bored now and then, but I mean, generally they're kept going, you know. Volunteers come from all over Ireland. Uh, my name is Harry McCool. I'm from County Donegal and I've been here on a project called Pfizer. It's an antibiotic drug and I'm due for a list today or tomorrow. What are they trying to find out about the drug? Um, I think it's... I, I just know that it's antibiotic. I've been given a, a form to read but I'm not quite sure about that form <laughs> as such. But uh, well, now it's an antibiotic drug. 
Would that form have told you about risk? It tells you everything about risk, the risk involved. I mean, uh, as far as I gather, I mean, uh, all trials are a risk, really, you know, to a certain extent. And that doesn't bother you, does it? Uh, it doesn't bother me at all as such, you know, from the treatment I've been getting, it's pretty good. Why are you doing it? Um, for various reasons, really. Um, one is that I've heard all my friends have done it, you know, and uh, I just more or less decided I would go in and try it out as well. You know, um, not just from the money and more out of curiosity's sake. Well, do you feel that in any way you're making a contribution to medicine and health and disease in general? I would like to think that, yes. Um, but I'm not, I don't know really, you know. <laughs> um, I would like to think that I am making a contribution to that. Now, what kind of tests do they carry out on you having administered the drug to you? Well, uh, dosing is uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. It consists of uh, two tablets. And uh, I have some blood uh, blood's taken during the day, about three or four times a day. Does that upset you? Uh, not really, no. Do you mean you've got used to it by now? I have got used to it, yeah. When there's nice nurses around you, I mean, you <laughs> it's very hard. You know, but um, I've got used to it, it's grand. Is blood the only samples they're taking from you? Uh, blood and blood pressure and that there. That's about it. And you'll be gone when? Uh, I'm due, I think, this evening. Would you come back again for more tests? Um, I would, yeah, I suppose I would. A volunteer in the ICP is subject to protection from at least three sources. First, there's the visiting consultant physician, and against a background of laboratory machines, I asked him, how does he see his job? I see myself as a referee on the football pitch. I represent the best interests of volunteers, and I represent them to the volunteers themselves, to their families, to the chief investigator, and of course to the ethics committee. Have you any qualms at all about the uh, risk taken by volunteers in undergoing the tests that they do here? I think we've always got to be concerned about risk and we certainly make it very clear to volunteers that any study must be associated with some risk. The risk may be slight but notwithstanding there's a risk both to health and to life and we make it quite clear to them from the very outset that there is a risk and that they've got no medical gain by participating in any type of study, that they've been given agents that they do not require and that these agents will not improve their health. I think it's my job then to quantify the risk in relation to each study. There's a general risk, there's a risk to staying at home at the weekend and statistically the risk of serious accident apparently is highest in your own home at the weekend. There'll be a general risk by coming into this institute to do a study, and there'll be a further risk then in relation to what agent may be administered. And in the explanation of each study, it is my responsibility to see that the volunteer is very clear in his own mind as to the likelihood of such risk. Would you give me one or two examples of the kind of things which might go wrong to a volunteer? Well, the first problem, and the one that we worry about most, is the totally unexpected occurring. My job, of course, is to try and foresee 
be totally unexpected. But we always have the individual volunteer who may react in a completely and entirely different way to any other person to the administration of a given substance. So right from the start, no matter how innocent the substance may seem, a given person might respond quite unfavorably to the drug under test. Uh, this is rare, uh, and indeed, in more than a decade of such testing, we haven't had such problem, but that problem will always be there. There are, of course, other problems uh, in relation to side effects of the agent under study. It must be remembered, if we, or if the companies who want these tests undertaken knew all that was required to be known about any drug, it would be unnecessary to use them in human volunteers. You mentioned earlier on there about healthy uh, young people. Do they all have to undergo a rigorous health test coming in? Yes. The volunteers are all examined medically. A history is taken and they're examined and there's a multiplicity of laboratory tests also undertaken. Uh, and it is a global assessment and they are accepted for a study of not only do they require to be medically fit and healthy, but from the behavioural standpoint they must be seen to be stable, they must have a negative past history and above all their biochemistry and haematology and all these various screening procedures must be within normal range. Well now, in the unlikely event of something happening, what's the, if I can use the expression, fire brigade arrangements? Yeah. Well, at all times we have emergency trolleys standing by with resuscitative equipment. But to my mind, the most important of all emergency procedures are that the, is that the first person on the spot should be able to make a decision and should be able to render primary life support where that is needed and that they should know who to call for help. Uh, there are a very lengthy there is a very lengthy procedure in relation to life support where that is necessary and we have most complex equipment which is available close to the subject again fortunately we've never had to use it but it is there and on a daily basis we anticipate the necessity for its use you say you've never had to use it no. And that's after, what, a decade of work? More than a decade of work. I'd like to think that this reflects on the care in which both the volunteers and the agents are selected. But we are certainly not lulled into any false sense of reassurance, and we inspect our emergency trolleys daily, sometimes more than once daily, and we have a continuous system of education for staff at all levels, from consultants down to the most junior technical assistant in primary life support procedures. And of course the medical and nursing staff are at all times prepared to deal with the many other problems which could possibly arise at any time. Apart from the physician employed by the ICP itself, there's another control check. It takes the form of an outside regulatory committee which has no connection with the ICP and it consists of a biochemist, a lawyer, a nurse, a politician and its chairman, a professor of medical genetics, Joseph Masterson. 
Why does he and his committee act as watchdogs on what happens to volunteers? For a number of reasons. First of all, because, as I've told you already, I'm interested in pharmacology. And secondly, because I had an honest conviction that human experiments, experiments involving human volunteers, were essential for proper evaluation of drugs that could be of enormous ultimate benefit to mankind. I realised that human ex experimentation or clinical trial, call it what you will, was an essential prerequisite to establish the safety and efficacy of drugs, but I realised also that such experimentation could only be considered valuable and acceptable if it was subject to the most careful scrutiny and the most careful controls uh, above all and primarily to uh, ensure the safety of the volunteers and the, the welfare of the volunteers who are participating. And what is the function of Professor Masterson's committee? Our function is primarily that of a watchdog to ensure the safety and welfare of all the volunteers who are participating in these studies. And may I ask what power you've got? If, for instance, you find things not according to your liking, what can you do? We actually have uh, alarmingly uh, great powers in this situation in that we, are, we actually have power of veto. We do, you, do you mean you can stop experiments? We c not alone can we stop them, we can prevent them ever starting because all these protocols are scrutinised and reviewed and discussed in detail by us before they, they, they commence. Is your board paid for this work? No, we receive no salary. Have you in fact ever stopped uh, any series of uh, experiments here? We have never actually stopped any but we have uh, requested explanations, clarifications, modifications in studies before they ever started. The third source of control and monitoring of volunteers and the experiments going on at the ICP is called the Quality Assurance Unit, headed by biochemist Bill Taff. The function of my unit is to design a procedure for every trial, and once this has been accepted by all the necessary committees, are to ensure that strict compliance is adhered to. This is achieved by designing certain checklists and protocols and we have to make continual, continual inspections to ensure that all tests and observations have been carried out. Are you involved in volunteers and laboratory and nursing and dosage and monitoring? Yes, we have the right to inspect at any time any function in the unit. Now, to make this possible, the Quality Assurance Unit is independent of the management structure and we are responsible only to the principal investigator. This allows us to call in and ask for checklists and for results at any time of the day and even at night. If we suspect any non-compliance of protocol, 
we have the authority to stop the trial or if we suspect there are, will be any serious adverse reactions we also can stop the trial. Have now, you stopped any trials? Yes, we have quite often. When we get the instructions from a pharmaceutical firm about the solutions that are to be injected and we were not happy, we would stop and get confirmation that the solution should be such and such a texture or colour and only when we are completely satisfied would we go ahead then. What about instrumentation in the unit? Are you responsible for the accuracy of that? Yes. Because of the nature of our work, all equipment must be regularly inspected and calibrated. This is done daily and it is, there's a checkbook and logbook beside each piece of equipment and a person is responsible a separate person is responsible for each piece of equipment. They have to daily check and calibrate and sign that having done so. If there are any faults, these are immediately logged in and the Quality Assurance Unit is notified. Well, as you might imagine, the laboratories in the ICP are buzzing with activity and sounds. Against the background of a computer printout, a bottle agitator and an electronic counter, I asked laboratory manager Josephine Coyle to give us a brief summary of the work in her laboratory. When a sample is taken from a volunteer, it arrives in our laboratory and a series of tests are done on it. These include, uh, first of all, a blood, blood and urine sample is taken. And the blood sample were, were able to screen for liver function, kidney function, haemoglobin, that's white and red cell counts. And this way we're able to set up a normal pattern that we can compare with the sample taken later on. A urine sample is also taken and from this we're able to determine if the volunteer has taken any drugs within the last week. Kidney function can also be determined and this way any infections can be detected. If after this the volunteer is accepted and all its results are normal, the drug is then administered and sometime later, depending on what the drug is, 36, 48 hours later, a repeat sample is taken and all the parameters are repeated again. And in this way, volunteer can be checked to see if the drug is, is having any effect on each parameter. Essentially, the ICP is a servicing operation. It passes judgment on new drugs and its opinion can, in fact, make or break a drug. Its main or only clients are large drug manufacturers, so I wondered how the ICP went about marketing itself. Pharmacologist Dr Ian Brick is Managing Director of ICP. What are his main functions? I suppose I have three functions to fulfil in our organisation. One would be to meet client companies with Dr Dara and discuss their new compounds and any work that they require to be carried out. Secondly, to oversee the flow of work through the Institute from the, the initiation of a study to the final report being forwarded to the client. And thirdly, to operate our marketing program, which this year has us very active in both the USA and the Japanese markets. Can I come back to your marketing program in a moment? Would you um, give me some idea, for instance, of the kind of activities going on in the Institute? Let's take this week. OK, well, we've got five projects in progress this week. 
Two of them are concerned with new antibiotics, and one is given by injection over seven days, and the other by mouth to check how fast they are absorbed and if there is any lack of tolerance. Now, both these compounds, in fact, if they pass all the tests, will add to the existing compounds on the market, and they will be used for such indications as urinary tract infection or a very sore middle ear infection, but it may be that these compounds that we're working on will work much faster and much more effectively than compounds at present being prescribed by doctors for these indications. Then we're looking at a very novel compound for the treatment of hypertension, that's high blood pressure. And here we're creating a very small amount of high blood pressure in a normal volunteer and checking if the drug under investigation can prevent this rise. We create the small amount of hypertension by giving minute quantities of injection of a naturally occurring substance called angiotensin, which rises blood pressure by 10 or 15 points. And then we would check to see if the compound under investigation was able to block this rise. We also have a sleep study in progress. And in this, we are measuring brainwave activity with EEG recordings being made throughout the night. The particular compound under investigation is an antidepressant and we're investigating its effect on normal sleep. Yeah, do you mean you want to find out if this antidepressant interferes with normal sleep patterns? Absolutely. There is a problem today that many compounds that are being given can in fact interfere with normal sleep, although people might not be aware of this. And we're finding a lot of interest now in checking with a compound that's used for an indication such as depression as to whether or not people can enjoy a, a normal night's sleep while they are receiving the compound for their problem. Well, Dr. Brick, can I go back for a moment to that uh, business about marketing? How, in fact, do you market the Institute? There are a number of ways that we are working on this. We're very active, obviously, in the public relations fields with our activities there. We put adverts into the trade press, but I think most important of all is that we try to put the Institute on the map by publishing as much of our work as possible and have it then subjected to review by peer groups such as the British Medical Journal or the Lancet or a number of American journals. And we would use these publications uh, to highlight our group's activities and then we would attend meetings and present papers. For example, we have a team of four people going to San Diego to discuss seven presentations which we will be giving on the Institute's work and its activities. And these papers have all been accepted by the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics. And if I could say of the seven, six have originated from here entirely. One, in fact, has been submitted by an American company with whom we work. So it is a joint paper with the company with whom we did the work. Who would be present at such uh, conventions? This is a very large meeting in America attended by a number of leading academics and also representatives from the American pharmaceutical industry. At the Nuremberg trials which followed the Second World War, facts came to light about the barbaric way in which the Nazis carried out some clinical trials on the inmates of their concentration camps. Now, one result was a declaration of a strict code of conduct from now on, and this was confirmed in Helsinki in 1962 and again in 1964. 
Among other things, it states, and I'm quoting, it is essential that the result of laboratory experiments be applied to human beings, to further scientific knowledge, and to help suffering humanity. Unquote. Well, that being so, and despite the intense degree of monitoring and control, I wondered how did thalidomide in the 60s and oprin in the 80s slip through the net? Thalidomide got through before the present stringent set of rules were in operation. Indeed, it was precisely because it slipped through that we now have the regulations we have. But oprin, Dr Dara explains. I think it's very fair to clarify the situation about oprin and that although the facts appear to be that the scientific data and clinical data which was produced was there for everybody to see, the way it was portrayed with higher visibility than ordinary, because it was given tremendous promotion, but the promotion was said to be slanted. I think this was where a lot of the problems arose. But the problem which arose was not because really there was a suppression of information, but the promotional impact was such that very rapidly high-volume usage arose. And that happens to be a very important factor in the appearance of side effects in populations. If we take the very well-known antibiotic tetracycline, the tetracyclines appeared in the 50s. And in 1952, there was already suggestions that the tetracyclines could cause a gastrointestinal upset caused, called colitis. And this was reported in 1952, but it wasn't until a year later that confirmatory information made it quite clear that, in fact, tetracyclines, which are still used, which are still extremely valuable, can cause this very severe form of diarrhoea in susceptible individuals. But the incidence of the occurrence of colitis was one in a million prescriptions. So you had to wait, statistically, perhaps, for quite a lot of time for your unfortunate person who had this propensity to respond to tetracycline in this way to get a prescription. Now, similarly with Oprin, it was only when Oprin was utilised in a very large number of people, I think something more than a half million prescriptions had been issued by the time the first side effects began to appear. So that it wasn't as if there was some very commonplace and likely to occur reaction, which was the cause of the problem. It was a relatively rare, but of higher frequency side effect, which would occur in the age group most likely to use the drug. And that, I think, was the catch. Yes, you see, I can bring it back to your own experiments here where you're testing drugs on young, healthy people. Can you assume the results of those would also apply to elderly, unhealthy people? No, it's very valid. That's a very valid criticism. We are talking about uh, studies conducted in the prime of life, in the middle part of life, as far as the biological systems are concerned, and the plateau, really, of adult life. After the age of 25, whether you like it or not, you're on the way down. And up to the age of 18, you're on the way up. And basically, we're talking about 18 to 25 as about that plateau of the prime of life. But at the extremes of life, there are very significant differences in how the body can respond to drugs. The young child 
will respond. The young, newborn baby, who may often require drugs, is much more vulnerable in many instances than the person in the prime of life or indeed the geriatric. But the geriatric does tend to approximate more to the paediatric in many ways. And here is a problem for us because as you get into the older age group, all the assaults of time that and in diseases and abuses of commonly used drugs like alcohol, nicotine and so on, they will have altered the capability of individuals in a very special way to tolerate drugs. So it's much harder to get a uniformity in a population of over 50 than it is to get it in a population of between 18 to 25. But then it raises the question, why don't you try the drugs out on some elderly and unhealthy people? Yes, it is very valid. We, in fact, do now conduct studies in healthy over the age of 65s. I put healthy in parenthesis, but we now have a very... A helpful panel of retired people who recognizing that they want to make a contribution to the betterment of the lot of other older people are prepared as volunteers to participate in studies to evaluate the basic information or to provi provide the basic information uh, about the uptake and metabolism and excretion of drugs which would be helpful in the treatment of ailments which are commonplace in the older age groups. Well, have Irish doctors, either by training or a natural talent, anything to offer that uh, doctors, stroke scientists in some other country would have to offer? In other words, why is the Institute, uh, as it were, in Ireland rather than elsewhere? Well, I don't want to uh, dwell too long upon the um, special attributes which might be found in individuals in our institute. But on the broader issue, clinical observation has been the hallmark of Irish medicine since the 18th, 19th century. It was in Ireland, really, that the uh, technique of making observations at the bedside, the clinical practice of medicine, really took root. And we made very excellent contributions in this field well, with the passage of time, clinical investigation has gone full cycle and we're back from the laboratories now to the bedside, but with the aid of uh, a great deal of electronic sophistication to look at how the patient, and in this case the voluntary subject, responds. And we're making these observations as they're happening rather than in the more um, frozen way in which they are being observed just in the laboratory or in the path lab. Well, that's almost it about the activities of the Institute of Clinical Pharmacology. But in summary, why does Dr. Dara think that the work being done by the Institute is important? There are many uh, reasons why I think that the work we do here is important. In fact, I don't think I would like to be involved in this kind of work unless I felt it was totally justifiable from the medical and scientific standpoint. However, there happens to be another equally important dimension as far as I'm concerned, and that is that we in this country have got to find every possible means we can for increasing the employment opportunities for Irish people. And through the work which we conduct here in ICP, not only are we able today to employ 100 Irish people in jobs which will be difficult to replace in this country, but as a spin-off of the work which we do, and in conjunction with the Industrial Development Authority and the National Board of Science and Technology, 
we are able to project a very favourable image internationally for Ireland as a place of operations for the pharmaceutical industry and for the allied chemical industry. And I'm glad to say that our efforts to date has uh, resulted in the attraction to Ireland of more than one pharmaceutical company, which now means that we have expanded employment opportunity far above the employment opportunity which could exist in our kind of institute. And I think that this is a very valuable contribution to our national uh, economic well-being.